Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. Before we get into our show today, which is going to be really interesting because there is such a high need to get employees to fill our caregiver roles, I always like to tell people a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks because we're always getting new listeners. So bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks was created due to the fact that my own mother had dementia for 30 years. She started having symptoms in her mid-50s and lived till 86, and I tell people basically that her disease was probably the biggest gift that I'll receive in my life. Our company is really focused on advocacy and providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe that by having these everyday conversations like we do here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, that we are going to be able to alleviate a lot of stress, um, inspire others to step up and um, get involved, and just share ideas so that we can remove the myths uh, that squander and really push people down who are living with dementia or caring for somebody with dementia. At our core, we believe that collaboration is also the only way we're going to win this battle. And I know that that's working thanks to each and every one of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, your shares have gotten us some absolutely amazing accolades. And those accolades we share with you because we wouldn't have gotten them without you. We have been named the number one influencer online guarding Alzheimer's according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. Maria Shriver has named us an architect of change. And uh, just recently in January, Oprah recognized us as one of 14 health heroes for 2018. And again, we, we don't think that's us. We think that's all of us working together and sharing knowledge through our multiple platforms and through all of our spheres of influences. So I really thank you for being part of our community. I'd also like to invite you to be a guest on the show if you haven't been, or maybe you've been here once and you're doing something else that we need to know about. Just give me a jingle. You can go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Just click on the big contact button and um, reach out to me because we are always looking for guests and you might be somebody who is living with dementia symptoms and been diagnosed. Maybe you're a family member, maybe you're a business professional that has created a service, a product or a tool or a movement that you want to share. Maybe you're a researcher or an advocate. It makes no difference. We know all voices need to be heard. So um, I would love, love, love to hear from you. Now, before we get into our show, I always like to give a shout out out to a few companies that I just think are doing extraordinary work. And so I'd like to mention to you the um, American Senior Magazine, Fun Magazine, um, Age Appropriate, Big Print. I love it. I can read it even without my glasses. And the Memory Cafe Directory, which you can get to by just going to memorycafedirectory.com. And the um, 
American Senior Magazine is real simple too, just AmericanSeniorMagazine.com. For them, you can actually get a discount if you go through our website, so that might be something that you want to check out. Also, I just recently interviewed a group that's doing fabulous work. They have come up with an app that measures brain performance. So if you go to the robertoapp.com, just robertoapp.com, you can find out information there. And if you use our code again, which is on our homepage, you can get their free trial for double length before purchasing it. But it's very, again, inexpensive and a great way to guide yourself and just understand more how is your brain functioning you might put pieces together in terms of how you're feeling and how your brain is functioning maybe you need more sleep maybe you need to eat better maybe you're just under a lot of stress and you'll see that because it measures different portions of your brain and tracks it and you don't have to share that information with anybody but if you have some concerns it's something easily uh, that you can share with family and friends and and maybe take the next steps uh, if you have some concerns by going to a neurologist to, to get tested. So wonderful app, uh, the Roberto app. Also, before I introduce our guest, I always like to give a shout out to communities. March 6th through March 9th, I'm going to be in Indiana through the library system. They have a thing called Community Conversations. And we're going to be uh, screening the film His Neighbor Phil and doing a discussion afterward. Then I'm going to be heading down to Florida March 15th through the 19th. I'll be down in Melbourne for a family caregiver conference. And then the end of March, the 26th through the 28th, I will be out in Washington for the Northwest Rural Health Conference. And you can get more information again right on our, our homepage for that if you're interested. So with that, let's get to why we're here today. We have a great guest who is going to give us a lot of wonderful insights that are needed to the crisis that is occurring today in our healthcare system. So today I'm excited to have with us Stephen Tweed. He is an internationally known healthcare and business strategy, as well as an award-winning professional speaker and published author. Stephen's latest book is called Conquering the Crisis, Proven Solutions solutions for caregiver recruiting and retention, which is so badly needed. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with him today. This work is really focused on solving the crisis of the shortage of frontline caregivers in our healthcare system as there are simply not enough people to care for our aging population. Stephen is the CEO of Leading Home Care with Tweed Jeffries Company based in Louisville, Kentucky. So welcome, Stephen. How are you today? Well, thank you, Laurie. It's great to be with you, and I love all the things that you're doing for uh, these folks dealing with dementia. Well, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation because... You know, as I travel around the country like you do, um, this is always the first and foremost conversation is how do we how do we fill all the slots we have and all the needs for care? Companies are really struggling out there. But before we go down that path, I always like to ask our guests uh, the same question pretty much to everybody. And, and that is, have you been personally touched by dementia with by, you know, friends or family? Uh, I have, Laurie. Uh, my mother, who uh, passed away last February, one day before her 92nd birthday, uh, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and uh, moved into an assisted living facility where she was for eight years. 
And we were blessed that um, the disease did not progress as rapidly as we may have expected. And so she was still relatively uh, alert and aware uh, right up to the time that she uh, passed away. So we were blessed by that. But certainly we saw some of the symptoms and certainly we met lots of other families dealing with their loved ones who uh, were experiencing much more severe forms of Alzheimer's. So yes, we've been touched by it as most of your listeners have. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I can go out and talk to a group of a thousand people and have them all stand up and ask like six or seven questions. And there might be three or four people standing at the end that haven't been touched and, and the, the room just is shocked. They're just shocked by that because right. so many exactly. people still don't have that conversation. Um, so thanks for sharing that with us. That's that's always helpful, I think, for our audience to know. What made you decide to write this book? Well, I've been spending the last three decades working with leaders in home health care, hospice, and private duty home care all across the U.S. and Canada. And while most of my work over the decades has been focused on business strategy and growth, helping these organizations grow and serve more clients and serve more patients, we realized about 10 years ago that the impending shortage of caregivers was going to be a, a real critical issue. And so we began to do some research into caregiver recruiting and retention. Then the economy shifted in 2008 and the problem became less severe. And so for the last uh, uh, eight years or so, it was not quite as severe, but then in the last three years, again, we saw this big uptake in uh, the challenges that leaders in home care and hospice were facing in finding nurses, therapists, home health aides, personal care attendants. And we realized that we needed to do some more research into that issue because that was going to be the, the issue facing uh, these home care organizations. And there just were physically not enough people who were working in caregiving to meet the growing demands of an aging population. So we began the research. I started speaking on the topic around the country at home care association conferences and corporate meetings and decided that it really would be a, a book that uh, would benefit lots of leaders in home care. And if we can help them find the caregivers they need, obviously, it's going to help their patients and families uh, as well. Yep, definitely. I bet the rooms are packed when you're talking on this topic. <laughs> Everybody is struggling. Yeah, we're getting lots of positive feedback. Yeah, exactly. Well, well that's great. Why, why is this issue um, important to families that have uh, somebody dealing with some form of dementia? Well, as you well know, um, dementia patients really do much better when they're in their own home in a comfortable familiar setting and when they're able to have a routine that's pretty consistent. And so uh, all the data show that all folks who are aging, which much, much rather have their care provided at home. And so that explains the explosive growth of the home care industry in America and particularly the, the private pay personal care sector where families are paying out of their own pocket for a caregiver to come in and assist with the activities of daily living. And so we have seen uh, significant growth in the number of individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia who are being cared for in their own homes. And we know that the care they're receiving is a great benefit to the individual 
But I've observed, and I'm sure you've observed this, that it's even a bigger benefit to the family, uh, particularly to the primary family caregiver who is most frequently the oldest daughter. Uh, you've probably seen what I refer to as the oldest daughter syndrome. But about 60% of the time, the primary family caregiver is the oldest daughter, and then at 20% it's a, another daughter, and then the other 20% it's somebody else, a spouse, an in-law, whatever. And so um, when you have these primary family caregivers who are already leaving busy lives, raising children and working and all the other things that go on, and now a parent begins to show the symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia and needs more and more care as the disease progresses, it's really frustrating and challenging and stressful on the part of that family caregiver. And so being able to have a caregiver come into the home, take care of the client, uh, keep them in their routine, keep them comfortable, uh, help them to continue to socialize are all the things that home care does that helps not only the individual experiencing the disease, but the family caregivers as well. So it's, it's a huge thing right now. Yeah. Yeah. That consistency from a family side is, is very important. You know, it just eases the process and, a more solid uh, relationship-based um, communication, you know, for the person with dementia. I know there are some companies that actually make their employees wear um, a certain type of um, uniform or a colored, some of them have colored t-shirts so that they know, you know, it's just one more reminder um, of who that person is for them. And um, it really can, can ease the process there a lot. Now, what, what is your solution to this crisis? I mean, um, we know we've got a shortage of numbers. Do you have a cloning system out there or what? <laughs> don't, don't we wish we could all be rich and famous if we could clone the best caregivers. Well, we've really studied this and looked and realized that there are really uh, solutions at three different levels. Now, at the highest level, it's healthcare organizations and communities working together to attract more and more young people to healthcare professions. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's working with the nursing schools, the therapy schools, the CNA training schools uh, to let young people see that working in healthcare is a a, a, a viable career, but it's also a meaningful career where they can do work that matters. And so that's sort of the, the big picture solution. The next level down is for individual healthcare organizations. In my case, I'm working mostly with home health, hospice, and private duty home care, although we're beginning to do more and more work with senior living communities, independent living, and assisted living, because uh, they're facing the same needs. But these organizations uh, really can work at creating a culture, what we call a culture of attraction and accomplishment. That is being a great place to work where caregivers can work and do meaningful work, where they feel valued and appreciated, where they feel like they're being fairly paid and they want to, to do this kind of work for this particular organization. And then the third tier within the organization is putting in systems in place to make it easy to uh, recruit, select, onboard, train, retain high-quality caregivers. And, and that's the research we've really done in 
working with these organizations to put those systems in place. I know so many people have gone to online processing and their applicants um, with never meeting them before. Are, are you for that or against that in terms of the online screening? Well, we, uh, we do work with uh, several companies that provide uh, online recruiting activities. We also mm-hmm. have an online pre-employment assessment tool but we realized that, that caregiving is a very personal, individualized career. Mm-hmm. And the best organizations not only use online recruiting, but they use employee referrals. They use uh, networking in the community, what we call feed on the street recruiting, to really get out there and interact with uh, centers of influence, that is, individuals who are at a place of influence to identify individuals who would like to work as a caregiver or, or people who are already working as a caregiver but are interested in coming to a new organization. And so it, it, it's a combination of online recruiting, employee referrals, face-to-face recruiting to attract high-quality uh, caregivers. We've done a fair amount of research with some of our home care organizations in identifying their best caregivers, getting them to identify the the top 20% of caregivers based on client satisfaction and uh, dependability, getting people who show up Mm -hmm. and looking at the demographics of that population, finding out why they do this kind of work, what attracted them to a particular home care company, uh, why they stay. And by answering some of those questions, we're able then to help those organizations craft a culture of, as I said, a culture of attraction and accomplishment where these high-quality caregivers really want to work and will stay for long periods of time. Yeah, because I know right now there's so much almost like stealing going on in terms of bonuses I've seen, uh, you know, and they're, they're kind of robbing from Peter to get Paul, and it's it, to me it looks like it's, they're driving up their own price. In terms of in terms of doing that, do you see that around the country? Yes, I do, and it frustrates me as well um, with all the signing bonuses and all the other things we see. But again, these organizations are really working hard to figure out how they can be an attractive employer for the best caregivers, because in order to be an attractive place for a person with Alzheimer's or dementia or for the family caregivers to make a decision, whether it's staying in their own home with home care or whether it's going to a senior living community, if a family caregiver wants to place their loved ones with an organization that really has excellent caregivers, Mm -hmm. that gives excellent care, that gives excellent service, that makes mom feel at home. Uh, that makes her feel comfortable because of the routine and the way she's cared for. And so these organizations are, in fact, competing for workers, and they're competing for the best caregivers. Yeah, yeah. I know, you know, my mom was in a nursing home. Well, both my parents were in a nursing home. My dad only for a few months. Um, But my mom ended up living there for 14 years. And she had excellent Mm -hmm. care until about, I would say, the last three to four years and it was in that time period there were three staff on her floor that were they worked so well as a team and they all left pretty much at the same time 
and they never, you know, the, the community really never um, regained that level of service because there wasn't a transition in terms of, of the new staff having the knowledge that, that those three carried. I mean, they just knew all their people so well and what worked in that personal history um, wasn't passed. You know, all the medical, you know, stuff that needs to be passed was passed, but but the who is the person um, never, right. never really passed. And, and it would be interesting to be able to look in and do an analysis of what was going on in that organization at that time that would cause three great caregivers all to leave at approximately the same time. Yeah. Now, sometimes it's just a function of the individuals. They, uh, the individual caregivers have issues. They have family issues and health issues and they move away and all kinds of life things that happen. Mm -hmm. But to have three really good caregivers leave at the same time raises the question of what was going on in the, in that organization with the leadership, with the management, with the supervision. Mm-hmm. that would cause those people uh, to leave. And th- those are the kinds of things that we see happen uh, around the country in senior care organizations is a change in leadership trickles down and frontline caregivers say, this isn't the same quality place that it used to be. Uh, I can get a job anywhere. I'm going to look around and find a place that values and appreciates me, that gives me the opportunity to do the work that I really love to do, which is caring for these folks and Mm -hmm. where I feel fairly paid. And so they'll pick up and move. Yeah. Yeah. In, in my mom's case, there was, you know, one, one guy had finished school, he was graduating. And so he could move up and on, and there wasn't a place in this organization. Um, And then another one had just gotten a fabulous job offer and she tried to you know, secure that within this organization. And it just, you know, they don't open up that often. And so she took it. And the third one said, well, if you guys are gone, I don't want to be here anymore. And, and I think that, I think that ripple effect happens way more often than what companies really understand the impact of one, of one person, you know, on a team can just have a huge, huge impact in terms of, of being the glue that holds them all together. Um, and I think that that's critical for organizations to understand who those parties are within their organization and, you know, why it's working and how it works and to really maintain, maintain um, those people and, and build on that. So it's not just one person gluing the ship together. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Do you do you see that uh, that conversation come about? You know, with the powers that be in terms of of understanding the relationships that are formed within their employ employee units, and because um, I, I think sometimes, you know, what I see when I go around, they're they're still very focused on on the tasks and they're not looking as closely at at some of the relationships that have formed that allow some of those those other tasks to move forward you know that higher quality of care um, to exist you know when you've got when you've got a team that just is sinking I mean they're just it's amazing versus one in a team that's struggling to perform you know which which we see out there a lot too because the other ones are just kind of there for the paycheck 
Um, do you do you cover those conversations as well when you when you speak and consult? We do, yes, because we've been blessed uh, to work with a number of, of the largest home care companies in the country through some of our CEO mastermind groups. And these are uh, companies that uh, in some instances have really been recognized as the best place to work in their community. One comes to mind, a uh, home care company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that's been identified as the best place to work in Albuquerque for the last six or seven years by the local uh, business journal, as well as an industry uh, benchmarking study. And so when we talk to the owners and the, the key leaders in this organization, it's very clear that they've made a conscious decision to be that kind of company, to be a great place to work, to create a culture of attraction and accomplishment. And so they're very much aware of the impact of their best caregivers on all the other caregivers. Uh, they recognize people, they put them in key positions to do mentoring of other newer employees. Uh, they have some reward systems to reward those, those experienced, seasoned caregivers and encourage them to stay with the organization. Um, and so they're really looking at creating that culture. As you said, there are other organizations that are quite successful uh, from the standpoint of the numbers, but to them it's a numbers game. It's how many new people can we hire this week? And even though they may be turning over, as long as we're continually bringing in new caregivers and, and it's much more about numbers. And for example, we know for sure that turnover in the private pay home care sector has continued to rise dramatically over the past seven years. And in, in 2017, the number was 65.7%. So wow. every hundred caregivers working in an individual organization, 66 of them uh, had left during the course of the year. Well, it's really hard to maintain continuity of care when you have that level of turnover. And mm -hmm. so the organizations that are really making a commitment to creating a culture of attraction and accomplishment have much, much lower turnover rates, which means those caregivers are staying longer, they're staying committed to their clients, um, and it is a very different feel in those organizations. Yeah. Well, and we hear so much about care culture and it, you it, you almost are giving up control of of your care culture with that type of turnover because you just you, you can't you just almost can't maintain it. Um, you know, because That's right. exactly. if everybody is new and and families see that and and patients feel it and it makes people nervous and it makes people feel a little scared. And so this is this is a hot topic because we're all getting older and we're all going to need assistance um, sooner or later. I mean, most of us are going to need need it in one fashion or another. And um, this is a conversation that has to be had. And and even families learning to step up to be um, care care partners. You know, what is that going to take? What is that going to look like? You know, you need to know this stuff before you're in crisis. Um, and what services are, so exactly. are out there. And, oh, and we're talking in the context of uh, dealing with elders and we're, we're talking to the oldest daughter who may be the age of you and I. But mm -hmm. uh, one of the scary parts is that you and I need to really address this issue because 
10 years or 20 years from now, when we need care, there may not be any caregivers there to take care of us. And I sort of joke with my children about they're going to be stuck with me, but it's not so much of a joke because uh, of this shortage of caregivers. And it only uh, appears to be getting worse as the demographic shift, as we have this rapidly increasing aging population, more and more people over the age of 65, more and more people over the age of 85, and of that over 85 population, more and more people with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. And so it's it's a very real issue for uh, us personally, as well as for our clients and our friends and family members. Yeah. Well, and your kids are lucky because you have more than one. I have one. And some people have no kids, you know, and that they, that's are, that's exactly very, right. they are very scared about this. And, you know, they're starting Absolutely. to meet networks amongst those that are single, trying to figure out how are we going to do this? Because uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 is, um, it is unsettling when you think about it. And I, I agree with you. We need to reach out and, and educate and give people purpose for their jobs. And if, if people don't feel purpose-filled, especially nowadays, they move on. The, the young kids, they just move on. And they want to feel you know, part of the wheel and uh, not just pushing the pushing the boulder up the hill, <laughs> you know, so exactly. It's, exactly. It's, it's very interesting, and I've always said, you know, especially in healthcare, most people that enter it have entered it because they are relationship-based, they feel that, you know, they want to make a difference, and so how do we do that, and I, to me, some of the things that have happened in our society have taken that purpose away because of some bad apples, because of abuse. I mean, you know, there's communities where people can't even give somebody a hug because, you know, it might be interpreted wrong because there's been abuse. And 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 those are really important moments that, that help connect people. And I, you know, or even taking photos, you know, I've seen a lot of places where there's no photos allowed. Well, you know, taking a photo of a moment of joy is pretty special. And, you know, are, exactly. are, yeah. are we swinging too far one way from the other um, that we're not making sense because we're, we're so worried of getting sued. And now we've, we've, we've kind of sucked the life out, out of, out of what, it, what our gift is in terms of that career. There are lots of challenges out there affecting individual caregivers and the organizations that they work for. And I think that's why uh, as leaders in healthcare, we need to really be stepping back and looking at number one, what's important for the client or the patient mm-hmm. in terms of receiving care, but then how do we create the kind of organization where caregivers want to do this type of work and they feel valued and appreciated by their by their patients and clients and families. They feel valued and appreciated by their immediate supervisor. They feel valued and appreciated by the leaders of the healthcare organization. And mm-hmm. that goes a long way toward creating that culture where people uh, want to work here and want to do this work. Yeah. Well, and I've seen some organizations, and I, I saw more in the past do this than what, I, what I'm hearing about now, but I'm not as well connected as you. But even just in terms of different incentives of being able to 
um, especially for the larger organizations, to be able to have some discounts afforded to people if it's uh, cell phone plans or gas, you know. I mean, there's just a lot of little things, little perks that can make a difference in somebody's life if they're offered, you know, and it's just kind of another anchoring piece that they have to analyze if they're, if they're looking at leaving as well. With that, do you see exactly. and, and we, programs? Yeah, I do. And we have a mantra in our company. We say what gets measured gets managed. What gets rewarded gets repeated. Mm-hmm. And as we're working with leaders, um, we get them to look at what is it that they are measuring. And so obviously, uh, length of service and reliability on the part of caregivers is, a, is one of those factors. And then how do you reward that? And so you build appreciation and recognition into rewarding what you want repeated, which is caregivers who show up on time when they're scheduled, who stay with your organization for long periods of time, and who earn high levels of client satisfaction. Um, and so how do we, we reward that? And one of the joys of our work is we get to work with some really innovative, creative owners of home care companies, CEOs of home care companies who are really uh, coming together and sharing ideas, solving problems, supporting one another to come up with new and innovative ways to reward their caregivers uh, to show them how much they're valued and appreciated. So there's a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, in healthcare right now, in terms of uh, how we make those caregivers feel valued and appreciated, and it's, it's, there's some pretty exciting things. Yeah, and I, I think you know anybody listening to this, healthcare or not, needs to analyze this in their business because there's a lot of dissatisfaction in all industries, um, not just healthcare. And I think a lot of this can work really well. I remember I was in real estate for 25 years and. I had an employee and people are like, how, how did you keep, you know, your, your assistant for so long? It was like 12 years and most turned over in a year. And my philosophy was, you know, having a, um, you know, a decent base wage, but just a lot of bonuses. Because, you know, he just needed that perk, those little perks, and to feel valued all the time versus starting out with a big salary. I, I built them in but put them in a different fashion. And um, and that worked really, really, you know, well for us. And, again, that was just, just one person. But I think the other thing that, that I see a conflict in sometimes out there, and let me know if, if you feel this or see this, but – because I think it's so important is having the responsibility and the authority um, to to do the work that you're assigned to do. And sometimes I think people feel uh, like the system isn't as smooth and that they don't have the authority to make a decision. And and then people get frustrated. Um, you know, they'll have the responsibility, but they won't have the authority. And then, you know, others, they look at one another like, well, how can that be? And games get to be played even amongst the team members sometimes, let alone the hierarchy um, in terms of who really is responsible. And you've got higher ups answering for something that they really don't have time to control or monitor on, on on that level, you know, and yet the wand's not passed. 
And I, I think that that's something I hear a lot of people talk about, um, that they, they really want to feel if they're doing the job that they've got the authority to, to make some decisions if, if there needs to be a change. And not that that doesn't have to go through a process, um, but I think sometimes they don't think the door is truly open um, to change. Do you, do you see that? I do, and you're exactly right. And, and what we see in these organizations that are really creating a culture of attraction and accomplishment is that they're doing a lot of leadership development, working with leaders, managers, supervisors to help them uh, be more proficient in their role and to help them communicate more effectively with their frontline caregivers, to lay out expectations clearly and then give those caregivers the freedom and the flexibility to know what they know how to do to, to, to provide that care in the way that they've been trained to do it, but also to be there to give them some support and encouragement if they run into difficult situations or run into a difficult patient. Um, but then uh, the supervisors are in a position where they can affirm they can show that appreciation to the frontline caregiver, and it makes all the difference in the world. Um, there's a saying, actually some research by Marcus Buckingham when he was at the Gallup organization, and in one of his books he talked about the fact that, that people don't quit organizations, they quit managers. Mm -hmm. and it has to do with the relationship between the individual worker and their immediate supervisor. So to your point, when you have nurses and therapists and home health aides working pretty independently in the homes of their patients and clients, and they're going from home to home with no direct supervision, they're given a fair amount of autonomy, um, but it also means that they need to be trusted and encouraged and supported um, so that they don't feel like they're out there in isolation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, leadership and management development is a key part of creating the kind of culture that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I remember when I was young and I had uh, I, I had a job in healthcare, um, and uh, another company bought us out, so we all had to reapply, which was kind of uh, hangs over your head, going, "Why do I have to re reapply for my job?" You know, and and so the first day the new owner came in, and he ended up firing two people. And that didn't sit well with me at all. And so I, I went in and I talked with them and I just said, um, I, you know, I, I don't know if I can work for this company. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, I don't think you had any right to fire those two people. I know you own the company, but you didn't say any of the rules have changed. And I, I just don't think that that's right. You know, I was in my early 20s. And he just looked at me, didn't quite know what to say, and then just said, well, do you think you can do a better job? And I said, well, I know I can do a better job than that. And then all of a sudden I was in charge of that, <laughs> that, um, that department. And then when the, the manager came back, the executive director came back, she had a, a really um, nice philosophy. I just, I, today, to this day, I still adore her because she taught me such great lessons about responsibility and authority. And I, I remember about every six to nine months I'd go into her and I'd say, I'm a clog in the wheel. And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, my staff needs the authority to go with this responsibility. And I'm just getting in the way. 
And she's like, but then you won't have a job. And I'm like, it can't be a clog in the wheel. And she's like, well, and she always said, well, do you see other areas where we can improve? And she was one where you could come in and, and truly had an open door policy and would say, um, you know, I, I'm willing to listen to anything as long as you bring ideas when you come. And not that she was going to approve all of them, but she listened and most of them she did. And like every six to nine months when I go in and say I'm a clog in the wheel, we'd shift and then I'd take on another, another role. But it allowed me to continue to feel purposeful and it allowed those staff to feel purposeful as well and let us all grow within the company. And I think sometimes companies don't um, allow that growth because systems get kind of stagnant and they're not truly assessed. I, I, I hear that a lot from, from people that, you know, I'm like, well, what's your job? And they'll say, well, do you want to read my job description or do you want me to tell you what I really do? And they're not, they're not updated and supervisors think that's what they're doing, but they've really changed over time. And I think it's important to really look at those things and uh, assess those almost every six months and let the employee be involved so that everyone really has a better handle on what's going on. But I think we're so paper heavy these days that we forget to have these conversations about how important everybody is in the, in the organization. Uh, so I, I think it's great the work that you're out there doing um, to help change that. Um, one of the things, Stephen, I wanted to ask you is when it comes to home care agencies and, and other kind of post-acute care providers, does this um, does your solution, you know, to this uh, conquering the crisis apply to them as well? Yeah, it really does. As as uh, we worked on the book and and really focused it on home care and hospice, we began to recognize that the same principles apply to other post-acute care and even to acute care organizations. So Mm -hmm. most of the examples in my book are taken from the home care sector, but we're having lots of uh, inquiries and feedback from senior living communities and continuing care retirement communities who are facing the same kinds of uh, issues. And the principles apply uh, it's a matter of how you adapt and adjust to the specifics of your uh, organization. So, yeah, we've had very positive feedback uh, about the culture section of the book and also about the process and systems yeah. section of the book. Yeah, I, I would think that they could easily, easily apply. Um, and because so many of the employees are whipping around between those organizations, too. You know, you're, you're buying for the, the same employees, and, um, you know, if you know that, not. that's true. In the big picture, it, it seems that way, although it's quite interesting. What we've observed over the last decade is that those caregivers who seem to work well in home care, working in an individual client's home, are a little bit different than the caregivers who do well working in a facility. If you're working in an assisted living facility or a skilled nursing facility, you're on a unit and you may have a dozen or 20 people that you're caring for. And so that CNA or that nurse is going from room to room to room mm-hmm. and sure they develop some relationships, but it's, it's a very busy, hectic schedule. And I remember sitting by the front desk in you know, a unit in the nursing home while my mom was in there, she had fallen and broken her foot. And mm-hmm. I was sort of dismayed by the frantic activity. 
Whereas in home care, you have a caregiver who is in there with one patient for an extended period of time. They develop a strong relationship. What we've observed is when there's a, a strong chemistry between the client and the caregiver, that they both stay longer and mm-hmm. the client does better from a health perspective because of that mutual supportive relationship. So it is quite different. And, and there are those people who thrive working in a facility where they have a fixed schedule. They know they're going to go in at seven in the morning and finish at three. Uh, there are others who thrive in the home setting where they don't have quite the same guaranteed hours. They have more flexibility. They can work when they want to work and, and not work when they have other issues. But at the same time, that personal connection with their clients makes it a uh, perhaps a more meaningful experience. So there are different folks who thrive in different venues. Well, and I would imagine some too. I mean, with home health care, people probably have to have more, uh, probably have more transportation than maybe someone who's living or working in a community and is going to just one location uh, could get by with a bus. Do you see that being a difference at all for people? We do. And obviously in in urban settings, there are still caregivers who use public transportation. But you're right. For the most part, caregivers working in home care uh, need to have a car, a driver's license, insurance. Um, and while they uh, are commuting from their home to the first client, they may be compensated for travel time and mileage going from client A to client B. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a you know, certain expense that goes along with having an automobile and at the pay rates, it's a stretch for some folks. Mm-hmm. So that it means the people who do this well are really making a personal commitment to doing this work. Sure, sure. Um, what things should families consider um, who are seeking you know, home care for a loved one? Well, what we've observed is that <clears throat> the culture of the organization is heavily influenced by the leadership style of the owner or the CEO and by the core values. So I think as a as an oldest daughter, primary family caregiver, to be able to really uh, get to know the individuals in the office of the home care company and to understand the core values that they share and the the leadership style of the owner or the CEO. And in a very, very large organization, that may be hard to do, but I think that asking good questions, getting to know the people, and it's fairly common that if a family is looking to uh, hire a company to provide in-home care, that the first thing that will happen is is an in-home consultation where a representative of the company will come out and visit the client in their home and the oldest daughter, and they'll sit on the sofa, and uh, it's really about paying attention to the kinds of questions that that person asks and the assurances that they provide. And often it's the story that they tell. And what we found is that the very best companies in home care were created because the owner or the founder had some kind of personal experience with a family loved one, and it motivated them to go into the home care business. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, constantly amazed at the personal stories out there of these owners. And so, yeah, they can grow a big company and, and make a very nice income, but it's not about the money. It's about their personal experience and doing this work because it matters in the lives of the clients and of the families. And uh, 
So a, a, a daughter who's seeking care for mom or dad can really ask questions, meet the people, and make a, a, a judgment based on what they learn about the company and the people that are doing the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really important. And, and I agree, there are a lot of owners that have gotten in because they weren't happy <clears throat> with the service that they got and were touched and saw, saw the need. But, but that <clears throat> shouldn't be surprising because every service product or tool is developed because of a need. And, you know, when it touches us deeply, um, we just jump in there, I think, even faster and are a little bit more adamant and a little bit more open, too, to changing, to changing maybe ways that things have been done before to really differentiate oneself versus if you just bought a franchise because it's a good business um, technique, there, there may be a little yes. different philosophy. Well, exactly. We certainly see people who got into this business because they heard it was a good way to make money. Mm -hmm. um, and there are bad apples in every barrel, I guess. But I I've been pleasantly amazed at the, the quality of the people that I meet who are uh, running these in-home care companies and their commitment to doing good work and providing good care and the commitment to taking care of their employees. And this is a this is a low-paid job. These people don't make a lot of money, but for the most part, the owners care about them and do the best they can given the resources that are available. And it's that balancing act because if you raise the pay of your caregivers, you have to raise the price that you charge your clients. Mm -hmm. And th there's a balancing act there between keeping the care affordable for the client and the family and making the compensation of the caregiver worthwhile. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, one last question I wanted to ask. Are you seeing any trends in terms of home care, in terms of like an, um, number of hours for minimums and things? Are you seeing a switch in, in any of that? Um, yeah, I think we are. We're finding that the, the larger, faster-growing home care companies uh, are recognizing that in order for them to give high-quality care and to be a great place to work for their caregivers, they have to have uh, clients that are using a reasonable amount of care each week. And so uh, a number of companies will have minimums. They, they want a minimum of three hours a day, three days a week, or 20 hours a week, or or some minimums. And And by doing that, they have found that their office operations are more efficient, their caregivers are happier uh, because they have the hours that they need and they have less driving from client to client. Um, and so, yeah, there's very clearly a, a pattern in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes we see newer, smaller companies who are willing to take an hour or two shift uh, because they want the hours, but it becomes pretty inefficient uh, doing that and as they grow and as they become more experienced in providing home care services, they find that increasing the, the minimum hours per day or per week makes it better for the caregivers, makes it better for the clients, and it makes it better for the company. Mm -hmm. Do you see any companies, because um, to me this would just make sense, really um, targeting in like neighborhoods? so that they can um, keep their keep their staff kind of in a neighborhood so it's more economical really for everybody um, to be able to service them. Because I think there's a lot of people that could use home care, but they don't even know where to start. 
and and I, that concept just seems like it would make sense to me. But I've only seen like one company do that. Yes. Well, I think that that again, the owners who are really astute and aware, and they have good information and data in their computer system, so they're able to, for example, print a map with the zip codes of all of the clients and a map with the zip codes of all the caregivers and look to see where the caregivers live and where the clients live and and uh, begin to match that up. One of the challenges we see, obviously, is that when you're talking about private pay home care, you tend to have clients that have more personal uh, assets, more net, net income or net wealth. And uh, obviously the caregivers uh, who may be lower income are living in a different geography. And mm -hmm. so uh, there are some areas of the country where the cost of living is such that it's very difficult for a caregiver to live in close proximity to their clients. And so it does create logistics issues with transportation, with getting caregivers to be willing to drive uh, some distance to go to their clients' homes. Mm -hmm. And those are all of the kinds of issues that uh, families are facing in attracting caregivers and companies are facing in retaining caregivers. And so as the population ages and as we have more and more people needing home care, uh, these challenges will continue to grow in significance. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I have one more question. I'm sorry. I'm, I just, I, I'm, I'm really, right. really excited about this topic because I think it's one that needs to be talked about. Do you see many tapping into the, um, the aging market as far as, as, as home caregivers? Um, you know, we've got retired people that are still interested in working, uh, but maybe not full time. We've got, you know, maybe moms that are, um, their kids are in school, but they could do something during the day. I mean, there's lots of, of different angles. Uh, do you see them targeting a wide variety to, uh, to attract employees? Well, what we've seen is that the companies that do the best job of recruiting caregivers have identified a number of different demographic groups that they target. So, for example, uh, the best caregivers tend to be obviously female for the most part, uh, between the ages of 45 and 55 who have been doing this for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's that sort of target population. Now, obviously, there aren't enough of them to go around. Um, we also are finding that companies are really targeting people who want to do this work full time. So 35 or 40 or 45 hours a week. However, there's a need for part time caregivers. And so to your point, yes, we see companies that are targeting stay at home moms who want to do in home care. Uh, but they want to work from 9 until 2 so that they can put their kids on the bus in the morning and be at home when they get off the bus in the afternoon. We also see companies targeting other demographic groups like um, retired teachers uh, who have retired early from their school district. They still want to do something meaningful, and they are willing to come and do this kind of work. So, yeah, you're exactly right. There are a number of demographic groups like that that are being targeted by caregivers uh, or by companies to bring them on as caregivers. Okay, great. Well, any last comments? I can't believe this hour's just flown by here. 
it has flown by. We've had a great conversation. But, yeah, I just want to say to the listeners out there who are dealing with a family member who has Alzheimer's or dementia that uh, in-home care is clearly an option to explore and consider. And there are some great companies out there that do this work well. There are more and more home care companies that, in fact, are creating specialty programs in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and memory care, and they're training their caregivers to deal with the things that come up in the daily course of caring for a person. So uh, I would encourage you to look out there uh, at the companies that are providing in-home care, talk to others who have been clients of home care companies, get a good recommendation, and I think you'll find that keeping mom or dad at home a a longer period of time will be good for them, it will be good for you, And at the point in time when they need to go to a facility, then there are also some wonderful facilities that are geared up to care for folks with uh, this devastating disease. Stephen, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you? The easiest place is to go to our website, www.leadinghomecare.com, or a page there with the book featured is conqueringthecrisis.com. Either of those websites will get you to us. Okay, great. So www.leadinghomecare.com or www.conqueringthecrisis.com. I really encourage people to to purchase this book. I think you'll get some great insights and uh, maybe attend uh, one of your workshops that you do uh, or hire you as a consultant. I think you've got a lot to offer. So thank you so much for your time today, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Laurie. It's been a joy. Uh, Best wishes to you and to all the folks out there that you're helping. Great. Thank you. In wrapping up, I just want to give a shout out to the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They are a fantastic organization that takes a holistic approach to to living with dementia. Uh, They also do a lot of education and outreach, uh, memory screenings. You can find them at alzheimersprevention.org. That's alzheimersprevention.org. Let's see. I also want to give a shout out to Maria Shriver. I'm excited to be talking with our team tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the Move for the Minds event taking place in June, and I will pass on more details as I get those. Uh, Maria has started an organization called the Women's Alzheimer's Movement, also known as WAM. And so that's something that you might want to check out as well. She's got great information, and she has a absolutely fabulous uh, Sunday newsletter that she does that I would highly recommend signing up for. She's just a very positive woman with some really deep insights. Also, the Neurofilm Festival is upon us, and you have till March 2nd to get your film in for uh, four different categories that they have where you can win up to a a grand prize of $1,000. So, Uh, check out the Neuro Film Festival. In wrapping up, I just want to thank you all for um, participating in our community. Don't forget to check out our our blog, our dementia chats, which are video interviews that I do with people living with dementia, um, or our, our main website. Lots out there to help you. Talk soon. Bye, everyone. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. 
Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.